This is the European edition of Breaking Banks, the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show. We bring you the European unicorns, startups, founders, regulators and leaders innovating the rapidly evolving fintech scene today. A truly localized podcast with both English and local language content with some of the world's most well-known hosts and influencers in the fintech sector globally. Join us every week as we explore what makes the European Union a phenomenal proving ground for many of the fastest growing fintech plays in the world today. Okay, let's roll. Hello everybody and welcome to Breaking Banks Europe. Today, for a special episode, we are here at Money 2020, the most important fintech conference in Europe. And we are here with uh, Jakob from Uland for the first uh, interview of these days. Hello, Jakob, and thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. All right. So let's talk a little bit about Uland, your role within the company, and what's bringing you here. Of course. So Uland, we're an embedded finance provider. We help large enterprises like Shopify, payment businesses, offer financing to small businesses. And we do that through technology. So um, we are part of the embedded finance wave that is trying to put financial services into other applications. Yes. My role in the company is I'm the chief commercial officer. My job is to make sure we grow. And I spend hmm. my time pretty much 50-50 between um, developing partnerships and developing our products. Nice. So embedded finance is like uh, the key theme. It seems to be the key theme of, uh, of today, conference and in general, quite a trend topic nowadays. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Why it's so important and why it's especially important for SMEs? Yeah, of course. So I think in general, when people refer to embedded finance, they tend to refer to this trend whereby payments, lending, other forms of financial services are put into applications that we use that do other things in finance. So when you book a car, you can pay through the app, Uber. Um, when you run your shop, you can get financing where you run your shop. Um, since the financial crisis, we saw this great unbundling of services. Um, increased regulation meant that banks spun out parts of their business and um, fintech companies targeted very small parts of the financial value chain, standalone lending companies that weren't banks. What we're seeing now is the great rebundling. A lot of companies, even outside financial services, are putting financial services into their applications. Um, and what we do at Uland is we enable that. Part of the wider banking circle ecosystem, we enable other companies that don't do finance to do it, whether it's payments, account provision, or lending. And I think what we're seeing today really is one of the most fundamental threats to a classic bank model, which is um, the companies that have deeper relationships with small businesses or with consumers are beginning to eat into the financial services value chain. Nice, interesting. Yeah, I've read on your blog a very interesting uh, sentence that was saying uh, the future of finance is embedded, which is quite interesting because, you know, I truly believe in the next 10 years we are going to all talking about embedded finance. And I've read also a really interesting thing about your booth, which is apparently the most sustainable booth of the whole conference. Uh, is sustainability something you care a lot at Uland? So yeah, you're right. First of all, the booth is made of recycled um, paper, recycled fabric. It's 
modular so we can take it apart afterwards and, and reuse it. Um, I think sustainability is something that most financial service providers need to be thinking about, um, particularly when you're in the embedded finance space where you provide financing to small businesses. If you finance small businesses and they go bankrupt, it's not very good for you and it's not very good for them. So one thing that's really critical for us in the solutions we build is to support small businesses to start, to run and to grow their businesses. And we can only do that if we think about the sustainability angle. Of course, in addition to that, you have standard sustainability angles like not financing businesses that are doing stuff that's not sustainable. But I think for us, really, sustainability is about making sure that that small businesses are thriving from the services you're providing and, and that you're not doing the opposite to them. Of course. And uh, connecting with that, do you really think there is a, a sort of barriers uh, for um, SMEs or small businesses right now into access, for example, the lending, the lending system uh, from the traditional point of view? Yeah. Over the last um, 30 years, we've seen a trend towards more businesses, smaller businesses and younger businesses. Yeah. And they're typically businesses that um, banks may struggle to underwrite if you look at only backwards looking factors. If you wait two years to have management accounts come out before you offer financing, yeah. you will miss a lot of the businesses. Of um, the average lifetime for a business is less than five years. Yeah. And a lot of the businesses that don't um, make it through, don't make it through because they couldn't get financing. So a big part of what Uland is trying to do is to look at forward-looking data points to be able to say even after just three months of a business being around that we can offer them financing based on their trajectory. And we do that by using some of the data points that wouldn't otherwise be available to a financial service provider. Some of our e-commerce partners, for example, they will see whether a small business is logging in regularly. They'll be able to see what their return on marketing is. Yeah. And we can use that as an early indicator about whether a business will do well or not. And that helps us just approve more businesses and um, help them grow. Um, nice. So I think the embedded angle is one that we are seeing sort of come from two sides. So on the one side, you see companies in SaaS verticals, food delivery, beginning to offer financing services. Um, simply because they have a good relationship with the customer. But you're also seeing some push on the supply side where it just helps you expand your approval rates if you work with companies that are outside the usual financial space. Makes sense. And uh, what do you think about the whole conference? I mean, uh, what brings you here and uh, what's your expectation about the conference? It's like we, we, we were two years and not really full pace with uh, this kind of conference, but in general. So what's your expectation around that? I think it's very good to be here. It's nice to see uh, the visitor number go up this year. Yeah. We're almost twice as many this year yeah. as last year. Um, last year was a success, I think, and I, I'm very, I have very high expectations for this year. It's nice. great to see both existing partners of ours who are here. For many, it's the first face-to-face -face meetings with people they've worked with for years. Yeah. And for others, it's new relationships that you wouldn't otherwise build. So I think very, very, very positive. But talk to me in 48 hours when we've been through the first few days, and then we'll see yeah, if it's turned out. That Actually, way. the most difficult part, it's, it's going to be after the, the conference to go back home and try to understand, okay, I've met this, I've met this one, let's follow up. So it's, it's going to be a long process, I think. But it's always like a very good uh, chance to meet new people and, uh, and get uh, the right partnerships going on. And my last question is about uh, maybe some announcements you, you want to make uh, or some news uh, that involves Uland uh, that's of course. interesting for our audience to know. Of course. So in general, we think of ourselves as an infrastructure provider. We're not here to outshine our partners. Yeah. And we tend to let them announce new features. The, um, the main announcement from our side is that we're today, after the last um, six months of work, able to serve the most 
largest um, markets in Europe. Um, and we will shortly be announcing um, another major market in the world. Um, I think we'll actually wait for our partners to announce, but we have an interesting use case in food delivery coming nice. out in the next few weeks, um, where we will be offering financing to restaurants that do takeaway food. Um, and we also have an interesting announcement coming out with one of the world's largest acquirers um, in a couple of months. But we'll let it, our partners announce it and, and sit in the background. Yeah, let's then follow um, you land announcements and all your partners because I can see there are some good stuff going on. So we are going to go for a very short break and then we are back with another interview at Money 2020. Hey guys, welcome back from our break. And I'm here with a former colleague uh, back from my Swift times, Gertin, co-founder of uh, IPID. Full disclosure and actually big news is a company that I personally invested in because I love the team. But why don't we let uh, the co-founder talk about it? Gertin, welcome thanks, to thanks Breaking for, Banks. Thanks for, for having us. Time. <laughs> <laughs> and thanks for investing, of course. We need to mention that, uh, that too. Um, no, we're very happy to be here at Money 2020 in, a, in any case. Uh, but let's explain what we actually do as a company. Please, right? please. So we are in the data orchestration business, as you might call it. So our vision in the end is to make cross-border payments as easy as texting someone anywhere in the globe. Um, so for any bank, for any wallet, doesn't matter. So that's where we come from. It's data orchestration. So um, just, sorry to interrupt you, but uh, I'm just like bringing it to the very like a ground level, right? As a, as user, as a user experience. Yes. So right today, if you're typically a client of uh, of a digital bank, you know, I yep. don't need to you know know the IBAN or the Swift address of, of a correspondent. I just know the name in some cases, and yep. if I want to send money to a correspondent that has an account in a digital bank. I just type the name and the money goes, right? Yep. So you want to do this for the entire world, basically. We want to do that for the entire world. We want to break the silos, basically. We have and why is it a problem today? Uh, because you're creating digital islands where you need to be in a certain group to be able to exchange uh, payments. Um, for now, reaching from an example, a Revolut to an N26 is impossible, right? Within the uh, Revolut's ecosystem, it would be possible. And that's the same, for instance, in Africa, where you have more than 3,000 different wallets, where those wallets all sit on islands, and probably about 3 to 5% of those wallets are, are capable of talking to each other and do a transaction from wallet to wallet. Um, so to break that and to actually open the system and to actually be able to exchange like you would in the past on, on Swift to any bank in the world, you would be able to do it to any wallet in the world uh, or any bank in the world based on a proxy being a phone number, be it a business identifier, uh, be it any other proxy um, that you think of in the future as well. Like your digital identity, which will be coming in any case in the next 20 years uh, as well. So who will decide uh, you know, which proxy, which means basically which identifier do I want to use it to be known by the world as a, like a reachable payee? Yeah. So, so we're, we're aiming to start with, with phone numbers initially because phone numbers, everyone has a phone number. Everybody can use a phone number and it's usually very much focused on a, an individual and a person. And in most cases, you would register your phone number with your wallet, with your bank as well. Mm -hmm. And therefore, that step is quite easy. 
of course, uh, if in the end it becomes a, an email address, if it becomes another digital identifier, um, that's up to the system itself. We, we don't care in the end what identifier is being used, but we know that phone numbers will work. Okay, and you know, this seems like a huge problem to tackle, right? And it's also very subtle in the sense that you need to be sort of a, uh, an expert a little bit, you know, in the yeah. payment space to be able to understand, uh, yeah. you know, what is the niche that IP is actually, is actually tackling. How are you going to, like, uh, first of all, to explain that in simple words, and as well as how are you going to, what's your go-to-market uh, plans? So what we're trying to, to go for now is really to talk to the uh, community, to the banks, to the PSP, to explain and validate the problem statement itself. So we're going to talk about these cross-border payments, about the proxies, and, and get them hooked on the ID itself, because most people we talk to, actually everyone we talk to, validates the problem that there is. Um, so we're going to build this community and we're going to uh, launch later this year. Uh, the initial launch is going to be later this year. And then we have a subset of customers we can work with and then we can really build this global network. But we need to build a global network because it's a global problem. You're solving a global solution. Um, and how we're going to convince these customers? Well, we're actually going to help uh, the banks, the PSPs, improve the customer experience. So not that they have with us, but that their customers have with them. Uh, because um, if you look at what fintechs have been focusing on in recent years, it's either the speed of payment, it's going to be the cost of payment, it's going to be the settlement process itself, um, but not very much on the front end, on the customer experience, how a customer is actually experiencing the process and, and the, 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 the cross-border payment itself. So nobody, in other words, nobody really cared if the customers had to copy-paste the IBAN, look for goals. the SWIFT address, and indeed, stuff indeed, like indeed, that, indeed, right? Indeed. Okay. And then uh, they press send, uh, and then afterwards the compliance department comes back saying, yeah, well, the address needs to be number 15 on the street and not 17, and therefore we reject your payment. Yes. Uh, so we want to make sure that everything is checked even before the transaction is, is happening. So it's, it's a, a, a pre-transaction data exchange, data orchestration, so that the transaction goes as fast as possible. Because very often, actually, if you look at the back ends of the bank, uh, the problem is actually not in the technology they're using, and they are very fast. They can be very fast, but it's just the steps they need to go through. And one step, which is very often a challenge, is the compliance uh, step. Uh, and then afterwards as well, the compliance at the other bank uh, too. So you need to have two, two sides where you need to supply the correct data. Uh, and supplying that correct data, that's the business that we're in. So we make sure that based on a phone number you have from someone in India, we're able to actually extract the, the data of that person from the bank in India and with the routing information attached to that, meaning that the compliance department has full information on that person, but also then the backend processing has the full routing information so that you know for sure that the payment's gonna end up in the correct bank as well. So it looks like uh, that uh, you guys are not competing really with uh, anybody in the space because you're almost any neighbors, you're a connector, right? Indeed. So, so we don't compete with a Swift. We don't compete with uh, Mastercard, Visa, or whomever, or even the wallets, right? Because the wallets can use us to attract payments to their um, to their wallets too, uh, and we enable the banks to give a better customer experience to to, to their customers. I actually think that the fact that uh, well, no, we both are, you know, because the, the uh, former uh, Swifties 
talk a little bit about uh, you know the founding team and also the advisors, the advisory team. The reason why I'm asking you is because uh, to tackle such a huge uh, sort of a problem which is known for many years and not yet solved. I think that the approach of people that uh, have been tackling uh, industry problem uh, from a global perspective, yeah. like Swift did, you yeah. know, and is uh, currently, is important, right? Yeah, definitely. That's why we have the backing of uh, some some great names. Uh, we have a Christian Sarafilis who's in our uh, advisory board, uh, who's an investor as well. Hey, Christian, um, you know, former <laughs> boss at Swift. <laughs> <laughs> we have you. Uh, uh, and, and we have a, a couple more, right? We have uh, Eddie, who's one of the founding uh, partners as well. Uh, we have Damien Ducouquier, who's, who's had a lot of experience as well in Asia and Europe uh, tackling the same problems. We have someone like Kama Montoya, who's been spending lots of times in Europe, in Iberia, uh, covering a lot of the clients where we need to talk to as well. So leveraging that network of, of people, but also with the knowledge of how to engage this market is very important. Um, we, of course, have uh, great, a great team of investors, but also advisors as well that we picked specifically. So we have the ex-CTO um, for, uh, for ANZ, um, uh, Commonwealth Bank. And sorry, Costa Beric. And Costa. We have Costa from uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Uh, so we have a solid, solid group of people that subscribe to, to the problems and the challenges we see in the markets. Uh, Wrapping up, uh, how much do you think uh, is this uh, a bigger opportunity in emerging markets versus in more established markets such as Europe, right? So Europe seems the experience is not that bad because it's easier, at least in terms of, you know, getting the money fast or like uh, doing instant payments. But as soon as we got in the, we get in a more heterogeneous system, things get more complicated. That's my opinion, at least from a neo, you know. It, it gets more complicated, but still in Europe, uh, in domestic Europe, as we might call it, we still have uh, a bizum, a blick. You have the low local infrastructures that do proxy resolution and proxy lookup, it's still not connected to each other. There have been initiatives, there have been uh, goals to actually do that and to build this uh, uh, central addressing databases. Uh, but I think the way we approach the problem with making sure that the data is safe at the uh, both sides institutions, we don't look at it centrally. We take uh, it from a very high angle. We only look at the metadata. We want to make it secure and reliable. Um, and therefore, I do think that also in developed markets, there is a significant opportunity to, to smooth the, 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 the payment process and to actually enable a, best, a better customer experience in the end. Yeah, to conclude, you know, where people can find more information about uh, IPID and how do they get in touch with you and the founders team? So go to IPID.tech and there you'll find every one of us, all our details and just reach out to us. and. Uh, and uh, we're happy to chat, happy to talk, happy to have coffees. Uh, we're based all over the globe, so we're based in Madrid, up to the US, up to London, uh, Singapore, Australia, go on. Uh, I'm based in Amsterdam, so if you're in Europe, I, I can definitely support and uh, have a coffee with you as well. Guys, that's IPID, IPID.tech. I'm an investor, and from money 2020, it's a wrap. Thank you. Hey guys, welcome back to Money 2020 with Breaking Banks Europe. Um, we're here with our next guest, Anders Lacour, founder of Banking Circle. Anders, welcome to Breaking Banks Europe. Thank you very much. 
Thanks a lot. So before we were actually, you know, I asked you to uh, sort of uh, tell me your story, and I think it's uh, so worth to share it with, uh, you know, with our crowd. Tell me how you like uh, started the company and how difficult it was back then to be a sort of like a behind the scene uh, when the scene didn't even exist, right? Thanks. Yeah, I, I can do that, and, and I think it's still difficult today. <laughs> <laughs> Just not as much as it was that time. Um, but yeah, I think like back in 2013, we thought that with the implementation of the payment directives, typically. We thought like a new group of businesses will evolve. Mm -hmm. That was the businesses that were later to be coined fintechs. Yes. And we thought when they come in, big tech will come in as well and start monetizing their end clients. Yes. And then the banks, traditional banks, will only have one choice: move up the value chain and do the same, because they can't be left behind the scenes. Yeah. So we thought like, fine, let's build the new pipes and plumbing to underpin all this. But back then. No? this front end of that plumbing didn't really exist right right so it's you know we use that image you almost like you you build the plums before actually the water came out from the and, and <laughs> from the sink later on right and that had a lot of uh, of i think looking back at it retrospectively funny uh, funny things happened when, you, when, you, yeah, when you said like yeah um like we mentioned some of the of the businesses that were very high at that time, like TransferWise or Revolut came in, they were easy for investors to understand. We were not, because <laughs> it was a bit more difficult to explain. Yeah. What was the trigger moment? Um, I think, actually to be fair, the trigger moment is probably now, like the current macro environment, okay. where um, everyone starts to understand that it's great to be in the front end, but you actually need someone to do the pipes and plumbing large scale. It must just be done much smarter is an arrogant word, but it must be done much more lean and with a high speed and a low cost than, than the existing. So what was particularly mm -hmm. dysfunctional before Banking Single came into the scene? Yeah. So I think one of the, and now it becomes a bit complex, but one of the biggest challenges there is of the you could say the existing pipes and plumbing, is that it's very hard to move liquidity in real time. So you can move the messaging connected to a payment in real time. You can be a fintech and claim that you can be swift and say you have GPI and, and yes. it works very well. Moving the liquidity is just a pain. Yeah. And actually when we started, and now it comes to the fun anecdote, because when we started up, there were really no central bank real-time clearing. Yeah. So when I talk to investors, they're like, oh, do you have an open API? And I'm like, it's a hard one trying to explain to them, no, because it doesn't make sense to have an open API into a central bank if, of course. if they do not run in real-time. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, now we're starting to see that trend, so the SIPA instant, faster payments in the UK is the obvious one. Of course. Um, but also at some point the Fed now in, in, in the US. And what we basically do is we connect these clearings. So you can actually have pipes and plumbing where you can go real-time without the use of your existing liquidity. Because I think what both banks and fintechs had to, and still have to to some extent, they need liquidity pools in each country. Yeah. And whenever these liquidity pools are dried up for the day, mm -hmm. there is no more real-time payments. Of course there is, this is how it is. Of course. That's the main chance we are actually looking to sort 
and we have come very far so far. By the end of the year, we are probably there with 80% of the world's trade flow, which means the central bank's clearing in dollars, sterling, and euro. Okay, so go ahead, go ahead. Yeah. But that was a long, long journey. Actually, we didn't really, to be fair, starting it probably before we got our banking license activated in Europe in 2020. And since then, it took off like crazy with it. 250 billion of flow last year. Looking to double this year again. What is the what is the total flow we are talking about? Just give some numbers. So the total flow last year was 250 billion through our platform. Mm-hmm. Around 6% of UFC commerce. And I think what we're going out doing here is like, we're doing it because that's the only thing we do. And that focus makes you very attractive. You also, if you were an existing incumbent in a traditional bank and doing this, but you also do retail banking, you also do investment banking, you do a lot of different stuff. So you end also up in a channel conflict. Yeah, of course. With your clients. Well, we are, we are the pipeline plumbing and we are proud of it. (laughs) Yeah, 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 of course. And we can do that because that's what we do. Then we have different products in our ecosystem. Okay. Embedded finance, banking as a service. They don't run within the core banking space, but they run in our group. And then the clients can pick and choose whatever they want from us. It is immediately enabled, you know, once they... Okay, it's it's literally like a menu, right? It is. You can pick and choose. No one wants everything, but everyone wants something. What is the, what is what is the like uh, the, the the near strategy? I mean, you seem to be <clears> like in really in a growth sort of uh, uh, um, um, timing right now, right? Yeah. So, w- what's next? So the, more services? Yes, in um, when um, in 2018, we did a management buyout together with the EQT Partners, the Swedish PE firm, and there we agreed on a strategy that what we really wanted to do was get access to the central banks. Euro, sterling, and dollars, and enable real-time liquidity through our technology, our AML, to, to, to really support banks, fintechs, and big tech, and everyone that wants to to embedded finance in that. And that, I think, roadmap will be completed by year-end when we have all three clearings live. Then we'll obviously continue that to many more countries, but we'll start adding on more services especially within the embedded finance space. Because I think we always believed that it's better to have a small menu that really tastes good than too many courses. Now we have that. And now we've launched a couple of other products within the account to account space, within the bank as a service space, and within Binopoly Business to Business. We'll make them work, we'll make sure they taste good, and then we will extend the menu. So it, I, you clearly consider yourself as a global company, of course, right? And uh, I was, that's a genuine question that it was completely unprepared, uh, but I think you're going to be fine. What about the emerging markets? Because, you know, the, the, there the markets are way more fragmented. Mm-hmm. There are new, like, uh, payment players that are sort of surging every day. You know, the new unicorns in Africa, for example, that, yeah. you know, that were born in the, in the last couple of years. Yeah. You know, what, what's your personal view on this? Do you think that uh, this sort of uh, huge plumbing need, when, uh, not if, when is it going to hit like less developed markets in your mm-hmm. opinion? Mm-hmm. So that is a good question. I think, let me try to address it from my personal point of view and then from Bengals' point of view. Of course. Yeah. If you take my personal point of view, 
that's why it's so exciting to me in this industry, right? Because there is so much opportunity. Yeah. <laughs> and there's opportunities in developed markets, there's in, in, uh, in the more undeveloped markets, and it's great. Um, so from an interest point of view, great and, and there's right so now. many nice business models that could be deployed there. Yeah. If you look from a banking point of view, we are a developed market business and that comes with a lot of how we have built our operating model. So I believe that financial services are going to be commoditized over the next five, seven years. End client doesn't really care whether they get their financial services from one app or the other app. If the user experience is good, it will work. And that's the good thing about, say, when the regulators introduced the payment service directives in the EU, they embraced competition and a lot of new business models came. Yeah. Similar thing in our part of the value chain, which is the, say, the smart pipes and plumbing. We need to deliver, to deliver like seamless, low-cost services. Doing that in developed market is possible because of the real-time clearings. So if you have the AML technology that we have, if you have the payment technology that we have, we can do that. We can do 110 million bank transfers a year with 11 people in operations. If you were a large legacy bank, you'd probably have 500. Yeah. If we went into undeveloped markets now, it's a different business model. Yeah, of course. So we are very focused on like, do what we're good at, B2B space in developed markets, because there's so much opportunity. Yeah, it seems, it, paradoxically speaking, it seems that uh, the the need for uh, like uh, a seamless uh, infrastructure, you know, people might not realize it. People think that uh, these things already work, yeah. but they actually don't, yeah. or not yet, right? So, ex exactly. And that's, it, it actually is completely broken <laughs> in terms of moving the liquidity. And you can, you can find a lot of like areas that are ripe here, which we have not taken on yet, but look at custodian services trading accounts, like moving 500 million between different custodian accounts in the same large bank will take you days. Yeah, that's one, one other, that, and that's probably the, the near term one we will do. So the Web3, in my view, is here to stay. Yes, it goes up, goes down, but it's here to stay. One of the things that we think we are very relevant is that the stablecoin element that will require regulation. Yeah. Trust is key. So much money in it. That should be backed one-to-one -one by fiat liquidity. Yeah. We can do this in developed markets. We can do a stable coin only for one client in one currency that their clients can settle in. We can do it in sterling, do it in euro, because we've got the central bank access and we've got the fiat liquidity. So that could be one you could say the new Courses on the menu. Yeah. The next yeah. 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 Super interesting. Anders, thank you very much. I think that we all learn a lot in this uh, in this uh, short uh, interview. But I have this uh, sensation that uh, we're going to be back on this uh, on these screens. Anders, thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. And it's a wrap. Thanks for listening to Breaking Banks Europe, a Provoke Media podcast in cooperation with Fintech Stage. Don't forget to tweet us out, shout out, or post to the team at Breaking Banks EU on Twitter. If there's something or someone you'd like to hear on our cast, let us know. See you next week on Breaking Banks Europe.